Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads, generally, for most people, are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Welcome to Face to Face. This is a show about change and about what's next. It's a show that wants to ask questions, peel back the layers of our average everyday experience, and go beyond scratching the surface. We interview amazing people with incredible ideas and stories who have done wild, weird, and wonderful things. Remember that imagination shared create collaboration, and collaboration creates community, and community inspires social change. I'm David Peck, and this is Face to Face. My next interview is with Professor Alexander Hinton. He's the author of a book that I've read recently called Why Did They Kill Cambodia in the Shadow of Genocide. He's got a new book coming out in October that I think you really need to look uh, for. He's an anthropologist. He's a genocide scholar. He's a writer. He's a thinker. He's a man of, of great passion uh, as well. And, and we talk about a lot of things in this uh, interview that I think you're going to find very interesting. He, uh, and, and I think for me, one of the threads that, that runs throughout is just this idea of of, um, I guess you could say of community, of others, of relationship. This, uh, you know, one of the, th the things that he talks about is how, you know, genocide comes out of this notion of our positive identity being predicated on somebody else's negative identity. And that's a Peckian paraphrase there. I hope it, uh, I hope it teases out. But I think uh, there's, there's a lot here to, to take away from this interview. And um, I highly recommend the book. Um, but again, this, this idea of inclusion versus exclusion is something that clearly uh, was a theme in my interview with, with Alex and uh, a real thrill for me to have him on the show. Uh, DavidPeckLive.com. Uh, don't forget to, to check it out for more interviews. And my book, Real Change is Incremental, is available through Amazon.ca. Uh, stay tuned for Professor Alexander Hinton. Well, welcome to Face to Face. We're joined by a very special guest today, and I'm absolutely thrilled uh, to have him on the show with us today. Professor Alexander Hinton is here. He's the director of the Center for the Study of Genocide and Human Rights, and he's a professor of anthropology and global affairs at Rutgers University in Newark. He's also the past president of the International Association of Genocide Scholars and holds the UNESCO Chair in Genocide Prevention. Thanks for joining us today, Alex. I really appreciate you coming along uh, on, on yeah. the show. Well, thank, thanks so much for inviting me. So it sounds like we're just, is this going to be like a really funny interview? Uh, there's going to be a lot of comedy in this one, Alex. Uh, you know, when I read your, when I read your bio, it sure doesn't sound like it. Well, it's, yeah. So sometimes people who work in the field of genocide studies have uh, sometimes bits of humor that appear, but I, I don't think that'll most likely be the case, no. unfortunately. No, probably not. And I, I, I do think I, I want to I wanna ask you at some point about, and maybe we could roll with this, but how, how, you know, how does somebody actually say, you know, here, that's something I want to study? And, and, and then I think really what, what I wonder, you know, family, friends, how, do you, how does somebody working in this kind of a field 
recharge. Um, but let's let's get back to that. Tell, tell me a bit about your work. You're the author of, of a book that I have read that, that is uh, fantastic, by the way, Why Did They Kill? Uh, uh, subtitled Cambodia in the Shadow of Genocide. You have a new book coming out. Um, maybe you could tell us about that. Man or Monster, The Trial of a Khmer Rouge Torture. I think it's coming out in October of this year. Um, mm -hmm. How do you sure. <laughs> how do you get into this kind of work? Uh, yeah, no, that, that's a great question. Um, you know, maybe we can go back to when I was in graduate school, uh, studying anthropology at Emory University uh, in the early 1990s. Uh, and at that time, the UN had just arrived in Cambodia following the Paris mm -hmm. Peace Accords, mm -hmm. uh, and there was a mission. Uh, elections were held in 1993. But as a when I first arrived at graduate graduate school in 1990. I knew I wanted to work in Asia, and I knew I wanted to do something that involved Buddhism, and I mm. narrowed it down to Tibet and okay. Cambodia. And then because of the political situation, uh, you know, Cambodia began to open up. Tibet still today uh, remains very difficult in that regard. Right. Uh, so I went to Cambodia as a graduate student in 1992. I had begun some language training, uh, and I lived there. But when I first went there, uh, you know, I didn't have the intention of studying genocide. I right. was going to study local understandings of psychology, maybe mm. trauma as an issue would be involved as well. Uh, but there's a field of folk psychology, uh, but sort of local understandings of emotion, self, affect. Um, anyway, so that's what I arrived with. But while I was there, uh, you know, people began to tell us stories. Uh, when I first arrived in Cambodia the first week on the way to the university, I was taking Khmer lessons. I passed by a woman who had been shot in the head and was mm. lying in a pool of blood. Wow. Guns were fired off. Uh, you know, so the very first week itself, wow. the issue of violence was very much in front of me. I looked up at different buildings. You could see bullet holes in sure. the walls. Sure. You know, the landscape there in lots of different ways, uh, you know, links into the history of violence, ranging from craters in the paddy fields, from uh, the bombing of B-52s, uh, to just little things you notice, like those bullet holes in the walls, yeah, or the sure. fact that at the time, almost everybody had a handgun. Uh, once I was with another scholar who had a research assistant, uh, I was talking, I said, oh yeah, a lot of people seem to have guns, and the research assistant suddenly pulled up, pulled out a handgun. Well, right. uh, well you were still, I mean, we were still in the in, in Cambodia Civil War, really, right? Up until, what, 97, you could say, there was still fighting going mm -hmm. on in various parts of the country? Yeah, one one person said the Thirty Years' War in Cambodia. Um, you know, that goes back to 1967 up into the late uh, 1990s. Uh, so the Civil War was ongoing. Uh, but my, you know, sort of the moment that catalyzed my interest. If there, you know, you think of there are a number of different things, but one thing that's always stuck out is when I would uh, I lived with the family mm -hmm. and. Mm. Remember one night, sometimes when you were there, electricity was very erratic, and the light would, would go out, and people would just keep talking. And one night, I was with this family, and suddenly the lights went out, and the father just started talking out of the blue about his experiences. Uh, hmm. He had been a former Khmer Republic soldier, uh, and he had been sent for re-education and suffered greatly, but he started telling the story in the dark. Hmm. And, you know, I actually oddly had this experience several times while I was there, um, and so over time, you know, I heard these stories. People would often say, why did Cambodians kill Cambodians? Why did Khmer kill Khmer? Uh, and in a way, that question became my question, the question I pursued. Uh, and I, so I really, I didn't come into it with a, a, an interest in the Holocaust, the Armenian genocide, 
or violence in general, but it was the experience of being in Cambodia in 1992 that really crystallized that entrance and in some sense led to the path uh, that I took to get uh, to get to where I am. Today. Alex, do you think if you'd gone to Rwanda, do you think if you'd gone to Bosnia or, or you know, another place where, you know, these same sort of acts of violence had similar history, you know, because obviously, you know, as, as it comes out in your book, there are definitely links and there are connecting points um, um, historically. Do you think you would have had a similar experience, or do you think you could say, on some level, the, that 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 do, that one domino, that one you know uh, ripple in the splash and ripple effect, was that father telling you the story in the dark? Yeah, you know, it's hard to know. This, so this was '92, so we're just moving into '93 and '94. Mm-hmm. You know, the Cold War uh, was ending. Uh, the UN had this new mission of optimism. Uh, belief in the possibilities of UN peacekeeping, uh, you know, eventually transitional justice is what people began to speak of. And so it was really a moment of optimism. I think in anthropology as well, for many years, people had not studied uh, mass violence mm-hmm. in any form. There's mm-hmm. virtually nothing done on the Holocaust. So within the discipline, there's not that much of a focus on this. So I think that, you know, for me, that experience was very important. Though I should note that, uh, as well, there were anthropologists who went to Bosnia and went to Rwanda in the mid-1990s, and this issue sort of picked up steam. And so there are a handful of other scholars uh, who've right. studied genocide as well, a number of other anthropologists. Uh, so who knows? Maybe maybe I would have gone down that path. Maybe I would have studied some other inflection. But for me, it was that question that they were asking, right. you know, why did Cambodians kill Cambodians? And, you know, that's the title of my book, Why Did They Kill? because that's the question people ask. So it's the kingdom of wonder. You know, you've got such a long history. You've got the Buddhist angle, the spiritual angle. You've got the violence angle, the, the colonization of the country, the, be- the beauty of the country, the people, and so on. I mean, I visited many, many times, as my listeners will know. I do work in the country. So I, I get some of that. Do you, do you feel that, sure, you're a scholar, you're a writer, you're an author, you're researching, you're, 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 you're contributing in that sense, However, I get the sense from you, you, you too have sort of been bitten by that kingdom of wonder bug. <laughs> Is that a fair assessment? Uh, no, absolutely. Some people, a uh, number of people have talked about this, that once you go to Cambodia, you can never, in a sense, leave. It's very difficult to mm-hmm. leave, and people mm-hmm. go back again and again. It's an amazing place, uh, and it's also changed dramatically over the last 20, 25 years. Um, but I'm sure it's a place, uh, you know, I have interest in other localities as well, but I think I will continue uh, for many more years to continue going back to Cambodia, um, even as I write on different topics. But more recently, uh, my, with the tribunal that's being held there, my interests have shifted somewhat to the aftermath the, mm. and the trials that have been going on. Mm-hmm. In the book you mentioned before, the trial of Doik, who ran a interrogation uh, security center where many people were tortured uh, and then all of, virtually everyone was killed and he was the first one to be put on trial at the uh, at the Khmer's tribunal so the second book well the book most recently that I've been writing is Manor Monster uh, looks at his trial the meaning of justice in Cambodia but also it's very much about how we see someone like him, and that's where the title comes from, mm-hmm. you know, Man or Monster. Well, and, and Doik is a guy who's been now, he's now in prison, he's now serving time for his crimes, he's a guy who was sort of in hiding, found up north, Anlong Vang, northwestern sort of Cambodia, was he not, and 
uh, suggests that he had a conversion experience of some kind. Is is no, that, that that's right? Yeah, yeah. So so people might know about him. I mean, he was sort of in the press for a little while, and 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 uh, so if you that's and it's spelled D U C H, correct? That's his, right. That's his alias. Yeah, his alias, yeah. right? So 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 Alex, tell me something. You know, just in the title alone, and there's so many sort of points uh, that I'd love to come come at this conversation. But this is, I think, the title of your book is really interesting to me because I think so often people like to you know, justify, you know, uh, something along these lines, a part in history, a time in history like this by saying, well, they were monsters or, you know, Hitler was a monster or, 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 or whoever, right? As if we're not them. So there's like this, this they're way different than we are, right? We, yeah. we, we wouldn't behave like that. T tell me about that. Tell me what you've sort of learned about that fine line. Yeah, well, this... Uh you know, so that question itself with the book on Doik inflects this question in different ways, but sure. it also speaks, you know, it also uh, relates directly to why did they kill and the questions I took up. Sure. If you, if you look, if you go back, for example, to the trials of the Nazis uh, immediately after what later became to be called the Holocaust, uh, but at the time, you know, back to Nuremberg, people were concerned with crimes of aggression. But in this context, when you have the Nuremberg trials, people, uh, when people were put on trial, psychoanalysis uh, was very much in vogue. And so mm -hmm. there were a lot of studies that came out arguing that different not surviving Nazi leaders were sociopaths, psychopaths. Right. And this was, so in the 1950s especially, this was a dominant mode of thinking about um, perpetrators. Anyway, so we might think of this as sort of a psychological psychologically reductive explanation or psychological reductionism sure sort yep. of a possible entailment so if you say why did it happen what, all you need to say is well the person's crazy the person's a sociopath it doesn't require any sort of deep contextual understanding of the moment uh, so there are a variety of there are a number of these psychologically reductive explanations that float around uh, even now when we see for example with isis mm -hmm. when you get characterizations of isis it's often oh uh, this is a barbaric regime right. that epitomizes the opposite of civilization. Sure. But again, if you think about the explanation, there's not much there. So the explanation implicit is that somehow this organization functions on a lower scale, and because they're on this more primitive scale, uh, they somehow act on primitive impulses. But again, that's not much of an explanation. It doesn't provide much uh, deep understanding of what's taking place. So there's another, you know, if we talk about psychological reductionism, we might also talk about biological reductionism. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, the book Lord of the Flies as well. Sure. Where you have civilized English school children. They arrive on this island, and very quickly the veneer of civilization is stripped away, and they become savages, little savages, so to speak. But that, again, is this idea that there's this underlying primitive potentiality that exists uh, that can give rise to violence. Uh, so a lot of my work has been in opposition to these kind of simplistic uh, reductive explanations that do have power because it's easy to label someone as evil, as a savage, as barbaric, uh, as crazy, uh, to give a very quick, concise explanation of what they do. But again, it misleads us, and it also leads us to view ourselves as the opposite. So we're the civilized people. We're the right. sane people. Uh, so again, you know, and why did they kill? I developed 
a framework to try and based on the Cambodian case, but also with an eye on other cases such as the Holocaust, uh, the Rwandan genocide that have taken place to try and you know, have a deeper understanding uh, of what takes place and what motivates people so, to kill. So tell me about the irony of all this. So you talk a great deal about the notion of difference and, and, and really, in a, in a sense, it's racism. And in Cambodia, it's such a weird one because, and so odd because it was Cambodians killing Cambodians. I mean, in a sense, you can almost understand the killing of another that's outside of your circle of reference, almost. You know, because, mm -hmm. well, they're a threat and they're this and they're that. But this was a, a case where families were killing families and friends were killing friends and so on. Um, but, but the irony of this to me is that <clears throat> we look at this and say, well, these people are, you know, are they're, they're crazy or they're madmen and mad women and so on. And so what we do is we create another. And yet, isn't that exactly what the Khmer Rouge were doing in order to justify the killing that they were doing? Does that make sense? Yeah, no, that, that makes uh, a lot of sense. And actually, the first book takes this issue up in one way, but the book that's coming out, Man or Monster, takes up that very idea much more directly. Um, but I recently had the experience of testifying at the Khmer Rouge Tribunal as an expert witness. Uh, right now, they well, at the time, they were just concluding deliberations about the charges of genocide that they have there. Right. And so I was in the courtroom with two of the senior Khmer Rouge leaders, uh, Sum Pan and Nguyen Gia, who was Pol Pot's right-hand man. I should add that Nguyen Gia more recently has been on an informal boycott, listening to the proceedings down in a holding cell. Hmm. But on the last day, he actually came up, uh, sat in the courtroom, and posed a couple of questions to me. Uh, so I was there with him. But, wow. you know, I stressed at the trial that it's important not to view them as monsters. They're human beings like us. They had reasons for the things they did. Again, if we talk about people as savages, as evil, as uh, sociopaths, uh, it drives us away from any, the very idea that there is a sort of rationality, right. logic, uh, meaning to what they're doing, and even, though it sounds counterintuitive, a moral logic. Hmm. So the question is also, you know, why did they do the things that they do. If we are willing to step aside and say, well, there, there may well, there are certainly some sociopaths in the world, but if you look at all the Nazi leaders, if you look at all the Khmer Rouge, odds are that that's a very small number of people. Right, so right. a lot of those people weren't sociopaths. They weren't crazy. So then what's driving them? And that's the difficult question that looking at perpetrators forces one to ask because, again, you know, when we look at them, we begin to see them as more fully human and we began to see ourselves as well. Um, so again, you know, I was in the courtroom with them, uh, and I'm now trying to write a little bit about this experience of, you know, my dialogue, my interaction with Nguyen Gia, who turned the question of genocide around at me and said, oh, was the U.S. bombing in Cambodia mm. genocide? Mm. Was it wow. war crimes? Wow. Uh, wow. Yeah, as, and as Robert, as Robert McNamara says, if we'd lost the war, we would have been tried as war criminals. Well, yeah, so he, that's what he said, or was it war crimes? Uh, you know, clearly it most likely was war crimes. It you know, almost certainly wasn't genocide because it doesn't have the intent. But, you know, I guess we're moving away from the question, which we still haven't fully gotten into, uh, about motivation yes. and why people do it. But I should just add that in the move of reversing a question, redirecting it back at me, he, in effect, was also engaging in a form of denial. Right. Right. Right, because he no longer was the one committing 
genocide. So, you know, you also have these issues where there are different ways in which, and in the court of law, and, you know, denial almost always is involved in multiple levels. Um, so, he has, you know, he has a very good lawyer, which is great, um, and they're fighting hard, even though the odds are stacked against them in yes. many ways. There's an enormous amount of evidence. Uh, but, you know, it was a, it was a fascinating experience. Do, but do, again, in terms of this notion of seeing a person who's often labeled as a monster, you know, I was there 20, 20 yards away from him, right. uh, speaking to him in the courtroom. And I, you know, I, I was grappling with this. Sure. I get, I mean, you, how can you not ask the question, how does this man sleep at night? Yeah. In a way. I mean, maybe it, maybe it's, maybe it's no, I mean, I, I mean, I think, I think what I'm fascinated by is, is that, that, uh, that thin veneer, you know, the, the veneer of what appears to be peace, you know, how, how quickly would our civilization crumble if there weren't, you know, if, if the infrastructure around us crumbled as well, how willing would I be able to, you know, be to take someone else's life if they were getting in my way, you know, in my family's way and so on and so on. And I think that's one of the things for me, um, you know, studying the uh, Cambodian history has done has allowed me to ask some of those questions in my own life. You know, I mean, we seem to be so willing and quick to judge. And yeah. yet we don't want to for a second dance maybe in that same, <laughs> on that same dance floor, right? Yeah, well, it goes back to the old, and this, of course, is a bit of a simplification, but it has a grain of truth to it, uh, to the weirdo. Right. Right? I mean, who's the weirdo at school? There's the weirdo. The weirdo's not me, mm. right, because I'm normal. And we band together, we normal people, against the weirdo. Right, right. So when we construct the other in different sorts of ways as weirdos, but also in the context of genocide as impure threats to the body politic, as contamination, as lice, so on and so forth, we're constructing ourselves as the opposite. Uh, and so it's a sort of paradoxical situation where our positive identity is predicated on their negative identity. And you have this dyadic relationship between the perpetrator and the victim in which each person is being constructed and identified in a certain sort of manner that creates the opposite, mm. positive, negative. Uh, and so, again, you know, this goes all the way from ideological broadcast down to the interactions between a perpetrator, excuse me, to a torturer, torturing someone, uh, in a torture chamber, right, in a cell. That's what's also going on is a person's being tortured, forced to confess. Uh, they're being transformed in that dyadic moment into a certain sort of being, which the ideology is asserting. There's a, so, um, you know, so I, I think most people would say, well, I'm, I'm completely unconnected to what's taking place in a torture chamber, but in fact, in a, it's, in a way, it reflects, it echoes what takes place in our everyday lives uh, and goes back to those moments, both of calling someone else a weirdo and also being called a weirdo. Right. Uh, you know, so it's with us everywhere all the time. Uh, and so I was recently giving a talk and someone said, oh, could genocide take place uh, in the United States here? Uh, of course, the answer is supposed to be no. And I said, <laughs> to me, genocide can take place mm. anywhere. Uh, and I think 9-11 certainly showed how you can move in the matter of a day from a situation in which, mm -hmm. uh, you know, there doesn't seem to be any possibility of genocide at all to a situation where suddenly uh, it's, you know, if you think of it in terms of a metaphor of heat, 
you went from a fairly hot, uh, hot, uh, you know, sort of cold water to lukewarm water. That was, you know, the temperature had risen, and suddenly, uh, Arab American, Muslim Americans, and even Sikhs in the United States were being identified, seen as different than yes. they were. Yes. You know, the people were aware of the differences, but they were stigmatized in a completely different way. So studying, you know, studying genocide brings you know, understanding it, that we can't distance our, ourselves from those people who we like to call monsters. Well, there, there has to be, it seems to me, to be able to look at this in, uh, in a, um, hmm, uh, a comprehensive way or a holistic way, there has to be a certain humility there, doesn't there? I mean, isn't that kind of what, forgive the comparison, but isn't this to some degree what reality TV is kind of based on, this idea of othering, this idea that, wow, am I ever glad I'm not like them? Absolutely. Right? If we want to feel good about ourselves, one of the easiest ways to do it is to speak about someone else, think of someone else as the, you know, as having the opposite qualities. Uh, you know, even, you know, I would say Donald Trump uh, in the U.S. with the election has done a lot of this, but I would say as well that the way colleagues, friends of mine look at Donald Trump does the same thing to him. Mm. You know, so it's whatever your political position, uh, wherever you are, this sort of thing takes place all the time. Uh, so I think the humility is, uh, you know, in my in the new book that's coming out, and I mentioned this briefly at the court as well. Uh, I think I think of it as this sort of it's an archaic word, but it's called effacement. Hmm. But it means it's the opposite of effacement, which is to rub out the face of the other. Okay. But I argue for an ethical stance of effacement that any sort of conviction has to begin with this idea of effacement. So are uh, me, you... Me, I worry, I worry, and I always get very nervous when I encounter sort of, I don't want to say unthinking conviction, but certainly conviction mm. that is that is undertaken, that's sort of upheld in a way that doesn't allow for any type of uncertainty. Mm. Mm. Uh, because that, you know, that to mm. me is another constitution continuity that exists in our everyday lives and with what takes place in genocide, that you have these genocidal leaders, and this is, I think, very true of Nguyen Gi and Kusum Pan and Pol Pot. I, I believe that they thought they were doing something they, good. They were doing the right thing, and they, and they sort of, with, yeah. co combined with this hyper sort of communistic approach, co combined with a scientific truth or access to some sort of scientific certainty, they were on the right path. That's right. So it's the sort of conviction that done in a way that doesn't allow for alternative possibilities, that doesn't have an openness to other points of view. Mm, mm. Uh, you know, so that's one of the, out of the book that's coming out, Manor Monster, mm. nice. you know, that's sort of how I end, and I sort of return back to Hannah Arendt's idea of the penalty of evil, and I re-change it around a little bit, and I reframe it, readapt it as the penalty of everyday thought. Uh, so that's and that's where I land in the last uh, last page of the book is with this idea of effacement and effacing conviction. Can we talk? And it's also something I brought up at the trial. Can we talk about Emmanuel Levinas briefly? Yeah, exactly. He's the, certainly the, is someone who uh, yeah who had a similar set of ideas. The face the face speaks, and what it says is, "Thou shalt not kill." So the idea that as soon as I see you, Professor Hinton, 
I can't objectify you as an academic or as an intellectual or as somebody of a different skin color or hair you don't have, uh, I don't have hair you do, et cetera, et cetera. Because the moment I do that, he says, is I've started to objectify you and then I can kill you. Yeah, it seems absolutely. it seems like a quick leap for for him, but it sounds very similar to what you're saying with this idea of effacement. Yeah, but I yeah no absolutely, and he's you know someone as well, Arendt and Levinas. Though I think he may take it one step further, even okay, to a sort of in terms of an ethical stance of where it leads. Where I, right. to me, I land in the moment of the need to turn and try and see someone else. Right and not just project into them to bring in my presuppositions about the world the way I think things should be. Even if I encounter Nguyen if I encounter Pol Pot, to try and see them as human. Um, whereas I think Levinas continues on from that moment Yes. to have a sort of the ethical implications are even sure. greater yep. in terms of the merging of the two. So I, you know, I'm not, I don't go quite as far as Levinas. I stop at that moment of just sort of the need to turn to the other to try and see the person as a, as a um, human being as a human being yeah because the one of the questions i wanted to ask you almost right out of the gate is you know why why do this study why write this book why go in is it is it about being a better human being is it about an understanding obviously it's academic it's about about research and history and all those things but ultimately is that a fair uh, i guess a fair question but is that how you would sort of approach that alex it's about becoming better humans yeah, you know, again, I didn't start off with this as a concern. Right, right. Yep. You know, I began yep. with that question. Why yeah. did they kill? Trying yeah. to understand that. Uh, the question of what I've called effacement, the need for effacement and trying to overcome effacing conviction, uh, that's really something that emerged. It's something I thought about in different ways, but not with those terms. Right. But in writing the book about Doik, you know, what... Hannah Arendt, what I like about her that people often don't do uh, nowadays is, you know, she ends and says, what is the lesson of Eichmann? Mm -hmm. What lesson can be taken mm -hmm. out of Jerusalem? Mm -hmm. And so I wanted to do that. And so in the afterword of the book is when I sort of, you know, this idea is there throughout the book, but it really comes out in the afterword where I take up that sort of ethical question. Uh, at the end. But, you know, what is, if I had to narrow it down to one lesson, and obviously there are many lessons and you know, you can be, everyone in academia is often critiqued for trying to make singular statements, but I made one anyways, you know. So to me, what's the lesson? It's in a context of power where you have a facing conviction that loses sight of other human beings. Um, and so, again, so that sort of ethical position is linked to the Doik book. Um, but, it's, you know, it's something, again, I thought about the goes back further, but it really emerged yeah. in relationship to Doik, and that's where you get the title, Man or Monster. I the I question is not about answering, is he a man or is he a monster? The question is about why we label him as man or monster right. and what it means about us. Right, which is great, yeah. which is great. Nice way, yeah. to, nice way to turn it, turn it on its head. Um, yeah, and the, actually the, and the cover of the book uh, is from a photograph of Doik that hangs in the Tool Swing Museum of Genocidal Crimes uh, that I had in 2009 I came across uh, right when this trial was starting and it had been heavily graffitied. The word mm. evil was written across mm. the collar of his book. So mm -hmm. the first word in the book is actually evil. Mm. It begins with this graffitied image of Doik 
and that now is the cover of the book. Um, and the person who designed it did a nice job. They actually put the words Manor Monster uh, in a sort of caption. Uh, so again, the, tie, the cover of the book begins to open these questions. But the book also goes into things like torture uh, and you know how we came, how Doik came to do the things he well, did. Uh, I remember China. seeing I remember seeing the film S twenty one, the Khmer Rouge killing machine, Rithi Pond's film, and which is mm-hmm. Doik was the 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 leader or the what would you call him the 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 director of the prison, I suppose. Um, and in the film, he's interviewing a, a young guy who used to be a guard. And I'm sure you remember this scene where he asks him to kind of reenact what it would have been like inside one of the cells. And 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 I think the young man picks up a small container or a, a water, um, a, a bowl, and starts to mimic as if he's he's hitting somebody on the head. And there was this this for me just this this gut churning of of, of how quickly this young man went from being interviewed to almost, you could see it in his face, there was almost, and maybe I'm projecting here, but it seemed like he was getting into it in a way that was deeply, deeply troubling. Does, does, it, does that, do you recall that? Yeah, no, I, I recall that. Ritzy Pond is an amazing uh, filmmaker. You know, if you read his stuff, he sometimes says he likes to put people in situations mm. and see what happens. Yeah, and right. see what emerges. And Super- so, you know, this is what emerged in that situation. Uh, can we do we glean something of who he was back at that time? Yes. Maybe do we glean maybe what he thought he should be doing when he was being filmed? Yes. Yes. Perhaps who yeah. knows? Yeah. But I'm I don't foreclose the possibility of the way you described it. That certainly is a possibility. But I go back again to this notion that I don't want to leap to a presupposition right. about his state of intentionality, what was in his mind, what he was doing. What I see is someone who is put in, as Ritipan says, put in the situation, and that's what he does. But to then say we have a sort of a historical time jump right. back into this other moment from today to then, and we're seeing exactly what happened, which is the way it's portrayed, it, it comes across to many people, I, I'm wary of that. Yeah, sure. Um, which isn't to say it's not a great film, but it's just... You know, it, in a way, it's almost too easy. And there's yeah, a film sure. about Nguyen as well, with some people who are linked to him, uh, where similar things come across. I mean, what do you do when you make a film? You have to edit. You have to edit at some point. And, yeah. Well, I, sure. I should actually say this is another sub sort of theme in the book Manor Monster. That's uh, what I call the redactic, but it's the fact that all of our accounts, all of our understandings of others involve erasure. Mm. Uh, and so, you know, it goes on when I write my book and I have lots of research material and I have to condense it down when Ritipan makes his film. Uh, you know, again, it's as we talked about understanding yeah. other people in reductive manners. Well, the reason it's reductive is because it's impossible to contain yeah. the complexity of the world. And it's the way we think. And the so caption, guess, the, the caption on the newspaper should read, "All the news we think that's fit to print." Exactly. <laughs> so this is. I guess I've returned to the notion of the banality of everyday yeah. thought uh, yeah. once once again. I guess this is a problem. I I've just finished this book, so it's it's fresh on my mind. Yeah, sure. Uh, but the other, you know, the other book taps in in many different ways. But it's why did they kill? Took up those two questions. How does genocide come to take place? And what motivates people 
uh, to participate in a project of mass murder. So I'm going to tell everyone, and I hope you'll agree, but we're going to do a part two. We're going to have to wrap this up in a few minutes, um, but we are absolutely going to do a part two. And Dyke, your new book is coming out uh, is in, 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 uh, in the end of October. But can you talk a few minutes, um, Alex, about the notion of, of, of reconciliation, of truth and reconciliation? You know, I've spoken to many Cambodians who just wish this whole thing would go away. And I think, um, you know, I've lived long enough to know that it's not just going to go away. <laughs> um, you might, you might want to sweep it under the carpet, but, but so I guess the question is, are the trials helping, you know, very expensive, a lot of work, a lot of time, a lot of effort. Are we going to, are we going to see a reconciled Cambodia down the road? Yeah, you know, that's a, that's a very complicated uh -huh, question. Of course. Actually, I'm working on another book I'm finishing <laughs> up, which is uh, sort of... You've got to stop writing books, Alex. Yeah. Well, the, I've been doing gathering a, quite a bit of data over the last... I bet uh, you, you know, ...during have. the course of the trial. Yeah, so, no kidding. Um, anyway, so I have a, another book that I'm probably three-fourths of the way done with that takes up sort of the meaning of the trial in Cambodia. Okay. Uh, so it takes up these questions in different sorts of ways. Mm -hmm. You know, they're not either-or questions. And it's even a question where if you ask an individual uh, at point A, when you talk to them, let's say, two years later, they may answer things in a different way. And if you talk to them three years after that, they may have jumped back to the way they first answered a question. So, it's, you know, the idea of reconciliation, a lot of times it's spoken about as if it's this, Endpoint as if there's right. a teleolo teleology that leads to it, but I think it's you know it's probably better to think of it as a process and right. one that varies from person to person, from group to group, and the same person can reverse. Uh, I think it's possible that you could ask someone something, uh, you know, even at one point in the morning and in the afternoon they might give you a, a somewhat mm -hmm. different response. Mm -hmm. uh, we don't think in a singular manner. Um, so, you know, but if you sort of say, is there a need for a tribunal? Uh, you know, one way I've, I always say, ask Cambodians, you know, it's their <laughs> that's country. That's good. That's good. So yeah. that's yeah. the first thing. Uh, so, but I've talked to a fair number of people and there, you know, there are differences depending on groups. I think mm -hmm. there's some broad differences. And, you know, I have to say it's extraordinarily difficult to generalize because yep. these sorts of generalizations break down almost immediately. It's <laughs> um, true, isn't you it? Know, yeah. So I'm even hesitant to talk, to talk about them. But, you know, you do have there are some devout Buddhists uh, who, given Buddhist conceptions of karma, uh, sometimes will say uh, that it doesn't really matter if you have a tribunal because they're going to suffer the consequences right. of their action and right. their rebirths. Right. Right. Um, or they will say, you know, with Buddhist compassion, I pity this person mm. uh, for what they did. Uh, you know, that's sort of the ultimate state of compassion. It's another, this person is another human being like me. Like me, they have cravings, they have desire. Uh, they also have ways in which they're ignorant, and that ignorance can lead them to do bad things, sometimes horrible things. And when they look, you know, in Khmer, there's not an exact translation for the word evil. Right. Instead, it goes back to the notion of Buddhist sin, bad action, very right. bad action. Right. And so people who do these things aren't immediately labeled evil as, you know, if we go back to doik's, the writing on doik, right on the collar of a shirt that I mentioned, the tool slang, where someone in English has written evil, but actually if you look at the Khmer script that's also on this, uh, this image, it's using Buddhist terms often. Right. And doik's eyes are scribbled out, right? And so people 
coming uh, from Canada or the United States will often say, oh, he looks demonic, maybe right. a bit like the devil. Sure. But what Cambodians will often say is, oh, it's a sign of ignorance, mm. of Buddhist ignorance. Mm. His eyes are closed, they're rubbed out because he can't see. So again, so if you talk to some people, some people sort of invoke those sorts of norms. On the other hand, I've talked to Buddhist monks who say, uh, yeah, they, you know, you will have karmic justice, but there's also real world affairs and a uh, process of justice as part of that real world, not real world, but everyday life as opposed to sort of religious reincarnation. Um, and it's fine to have that. And in fact, even in Buddhist monasteries, there can be courts that are convened uh, for infractions within the Sangha. Uh, so that's one group where some people will invoke this set of discourses. You have, in terms of geography, you know, I think in the cities, there tends to be more desire for a tribunal sometimes sure, than in sure. the countryside. Uh, broadly, if people are older and live through the Khmer Rouge period, I think you have slightly higher numbers that favor a tribunal. Right. If you go to former Khmer Rouge zones, uh, people will invoke notions of reconciliation much more readily. Right. Mm -hmm. But having said that all this, sense. if we go back, and I want to immediately sort of subvert everything I've said and say if you also look at Cambodian history, in the 19, if we go back to the 1980s, when the Cambodian government at times called for an international tribunal or some sort of tribunal, uh, but nobody, because of the Cold War, this just wasn't going to happen, and so those those calls were ignored. We got into the early 1990s in Cambodia, and the government called for reconciliation, even as the United States, which hadn't pushed a tribunal before in 1994, passed the Cambodian Genocide Act, which helped catalyze the movement for a tribunal. Uh, so, again, even if you move through time, perspectives of people, sure. uh, players, participants change. A uh, whole generation, kids were intensively educated about the genocide uh, because it was part of the government's uh, attempt to mobilize affect against the Khmer Rouge, who were still fighting during the 1980s into the early 1990s. But then when you had the Paris Peace Accord, suddenly everything shifted and all of the lessons about this were written out of the high school uh, text. And so then suddenly you have this generation where people are intensively educated, kids were intensively educated about to a situation where they weren't educated at all, right? And so they began to grow up, and some of them didn't believe that this had ever taken place. And now you have the reintroduction very recently of a new book that's come about, and you have the tribunal, and it's increased awareness about the history as well. Mm -hmm. You know, as a long, unsatisfactory answer to your question, and I guess I, I turn it back in the end and say, you know, we need to listen to see what Cambodians say. I listen to what some of them have said, and they yeah. say a lot of different things. I love, um, I love though the fact that we're pretty much wrapping up the interview by this whole notion that we have to listen to Cambodians. That that you know, from, uh, from my background in international development, et cetera, I mean, this whole notion of listening is just central. Can I? I'm just going to end us here with a quote from your book, uh, "Why People Kill." Quote: uh, We are all enabled and compelled by the contexts in which we live. We all have multiple motivations, and we all invest psychologically in what we do. Though we might despise them, genocidal perpetrators are meaning-making beings with complex motivations that cannot simply be explained away in terms of ideological fanaticism or obedience to authority, close quote. It's a great quote. I mean, it's, it pretty much ends the book, um, but I think it also, I hope, creates enough interest in some uh, listeners out there so they might go out and get the book and, and, and maybe look for your new one coming up. But uh, Alex, thank you so much um, uh, for your time today. I can't believe time has flown by. Um, are you? Um, 
it sounds like you've got two or three books in the makings. What what is next for you? Uh, well, the yeah, the two, two several different projects. Um, first, let me also say thank you for oh. taking the time, uh, you know, to talk to me today and to, to oh, have this dialogue. It's been fascinating and time really is uh, passed by in a blink of an eye. <laughs> really, um, so I part two for sure. Are we in agreement? Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so, good. you know, just in a nutshell, what I'm working on, I'm actually literally just working on a talk about critical thinking and genocide prevention that I'm wow. going to present in Armenia on Saturday wow. at a global forum. Okay. Global forum. Um, I'm writing a essay about uh, my experience of testifying at the tribunal mm-hmm. and, in particular, my exchange with Nguyen You know, it's possible that could turn into a short book. Sure. I don't know. But what I need to do most immediately is to finish this other book, uh, the, about the tribunal and its meaning in Cambodia, uh, hopefully by then, you know, before the end of the year. Um, and then I will have another project on genocide prevention uh, down the road. But wow. uh, I have wow. my Busy. hands full. Hands uh, are full. Do at the moment. Yeah, keep, keep lots of ink in that pen. <laughs> yes, and uh, that for sure. Professor Alexander Hinton, he's the director of the Center for the Study of Genocide and Human Rights and professor of anthropology and global affairs at Rutgers University, author of Why Did They Kill and Man or Monster coming out in October. Alex, thanks again for joining us today. Okay, thank you. deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.